Uh, how many old people do you want to kill mm-hmm. in order to stave off global warming? If you really think global warming is happening, how many old people you want to kill to keep it from happening? That's the question you have to ask. Because fundamentally, until green energy becomes the same price as and as reliable as uh, fossil fuels, then you're killing people by going green. Wow. And that's something. The, yeah, something you're never going to hear anybody. And that's not even the worst of it. Admit the, to. The worst of it is... Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. One Little Candle is a member of the Christian Podcast community, where you'll not only find great podcasts like this, but you'll also find great podcasts such as these. What's up, Dad Hackers? My name is Patrick Antonucci, and I am the host and founder of this podcast and community of Dad Hackers. Whether you're new here or have been here for a long time, I want to personally welcome you. Dad Hackers is a community of Christian fathers who are devoted to encouraging, equipping, and enabling one another to become the men that God has created and designed us to be so that we can raise up the next generation of fully devoted followers of Christ and leave a legacy of multi-generational faithfulness. On this show, we primarily interview Christian men to dive into their experiences and insights into what it means to be a Christian man, a Christian husband, a Christian father, and a leader. We ask questions that dig deep into the thinking and rationale of these men so that we can all learn and grow into the men that God is calling us to be. I'm grateful you joined us today. Make sure you subscribe so that you never miss any of our episodes. Also, be sure to leave an honest review. Reviews help to boost the show's ratings, which means that more dads are going to come across our show and benefit from the content that we put out. I wanted to let you know that we also have a free private Facebook group just for Christian men. So head on over to facebook.com slash group slash dadhacker and apply to join by answering the three questions when prompted. That's facebook.com slash group slash dad hacker. So check it out at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. Today is part two of my interview with Dr. Jay Weil on the subject of climate change. If you haven't had the chance to listen to last week's episode, part one, I'd encourage you to please go listen to that first before you join us in part two. And I hope you, you're learning a lot from Dr. Weil. Again, I know I did. So I hope this has really been not just informative for you, but reassuring if you are at all listening to some of these um, things that we're hearing on global warming or climate change. If you're at all fearful or anxious about the future and really are looking for some sort of perspective on this whole thing, which they're really not giving people. Um, they're just putting these fearful things out there and expecting people to just, well, I don't know, do whatever it is that they want them to do out of fear, I think, mostly. 
But anyway, Dr. Weil is going to talk some more about climate change. We're going to get a little bit into some of the green energy, the fossil fuels, the deadly cost of going green when we're not ready. Um, all kinds of interesting insight coming from Dr. Weil. So without further ado, here is part two of my interview with Dr. Jay Weil. We know that. There's no there's no denying it's a direct trend, and you can see it every time. Uh, there was a study done with, with uh, Japan when the Fukushima uh, accident occurred and, you know, the, the nuclear power plant had to be shut down. The energy prices rose up because energy was more scarce, and so the energy prices rose like crazy. And the human deaths increased like crazy. And as soon as the cost of energy went down, human deaths went down again. And so whenever we increase the cost of energy, most people don't realize we are actually killing people. Mm. And there's, there's no, there's no denying that. So if I'm saying, okay, we need to go green uh, and we need to sort of tighten our belts and, and spend a little more on electricity to you and me, that sounds fine. Okay. Maybe I can't go out to dinner, but to people who are barely making it, that means they turn off their heater and they die of exposure because mm -hmm. that's what happens. And so Every time people say, well, we need to do this, and it'll increase energy costs a little bit, but when that happens, we know people are dying. So the real question is, how many old people, because it's mostly old people who die of this, uh, how many old people do you want to kill mm -hmm. in order to stave off global warming? Mm -hmm. If you really think global warming is happening, how many old people you want to kill to keep it from happening? That's the question you have to ask, because fundamentally, until green energy becomes the same price as and, and as reliable as uh, fossil fuels, then you're killing people by going green. Wow. And that's something, yeah, something you're never going to hear anybody. And that's not even the worst of it. Admit the, to. The worst of it is you're condemning certain regions of the planet, people in certain regions of the planet more than elsewhere. So mm -hmm. we know in the industrialized world, when energy is, in, is expensive, people die. That is magnified in the third world. In the third world, when energy goes up, even more people die uh, because in the end, there are very few support structures, uh, you know, just, you know, people die because they can't afford the gas. They can't they don't, can't afford a, a car to get them to the hospital. There are just many more reasons higher energy costs kill people in third world countries than in first world countries. So if you're saying, for example, we can't have any more fossil fuels then what you're saying is there are large swaths of Africa that will never have reliable electricity. And so the infant mortality rate is always going to be high there. And so we're just going to kill a bunch of babies uh, to keep uh, uh, carbon dioxide levels low. Kill a bunch of African babies to keep carbon dioxide level low. I don't like that scenario. I yeah, really right. don't. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, that, that's also something that's very rarely talked about. Yeah. And there's a reason. There's yeah, a, reason there's a reason for it. I think you had said to me, you know, a lot of people that are very much all about this are also extremely concerned about racism. Yep. <laughs> right. But this is this is exactly right. I mean, this is classic racism. Now, honestly, I do think most people who promote this, you know, uh, fear mongering about global warming, they honestly aren't informed enough to know this. I don't mm -hmm. think very many of them say, yeah, I'm willing for African babies to die for, to keep carbon dioxide low. I don't think they're informed enough to know that. No, they've, they've uh, jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, but um, they've jumped on the bandwagon without informing themselves enough. Mm -hmm. So it's not exactly racism because racism implies some sort of uh, a motivating factor. Right. But it's certainly 
only re- it's the same result yeah. as racism. That was very sarcastic <laughs> on my part. <laughs> that was a jab at systemic racism um, yeah. <laughs> ideologies. But but anyway, so okay, let's yeah, let's talk a little bit about electric cars because I was just reading, or I think my son was telling me how these car makers more and more are saying, "Oh, we're going to stop by the year 2040, which isn't that far off. We're going to start making all electric cars." And more and more companies are moving towards only being able to buy electric cars. My first question is, I'm trying to picture compared with people at the gas pump, people at charging stations, yeah. and and how long it would take to charge a car compared to pumping gas and what lines like that would be. I don't know. Am I not thinking well, right to, here? To some extent, to some extent, you you uh, you are, you're you're magnifying the problem because you can charge things pretty quickly. Okay, that's uh, what I didn't with, know. With the right okay. kind of technology. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, you think about, you know, recharging a battery right now on your phone or whatever. You plug it into the wall and it says it's going to be an hour before that's it That's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, but that's not, I mean, you, if you, if you've got, if you, uh, are willing to spend the, spend the money to produce a, a real battery charger, you could charge, most of these cars could charge. There are two different kinds of charging you do in battery. There's a trickle charge and then there's a flash charge. And when you trickle charge a battery, the battery can store more. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you flash charge it, it stores a little less. Uh, so, you know, you always want a trickle charge when you can, but obviously you're not going to do that on the road because the trickle charge takes time. So you can flash charge a car battery in 15 minutes with the right uh, charging station. And that's not nearly as bad. It's still, you know, not the two minutes it takes to fill your car, but it's not as bad, I think, as most people would think. Okay. Hmm. Uh, so, but you know, I think, um, I think in, in general, in, in the, and I, I, I'm not one of these people, so I can't say for sure, but in the minds of people who are really pushing electric cars and so forth, I think the argument is if we have electric cars, we adjust our lifestyle so that they work for us. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we're going to take a trip out to Massachusetts and it from Indiana to Massachusetts, it's, you know, a thousand miles, uh, I'm not going to plan to be able to do it in 10 hours. Hmm. I'm going to plan to take 20 hours to do it. And I'll, you know, I'll plan my, my uh, rest breaks and my lunch, my food breaks and everything at one of these charging stations. And so I think most people say we'll adjust. It'll be a little less convenient, but we'll adjust to this new world of electric vehicles. And I, and, and to some extent that's reasonable because people do adjust, right? Uh, uh, whether or not we need to adjust, that's another issue. That's funny. Cause I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking just picturing people on the roads. Now everybody is in such a hurry to get nowhere. I, you know what I mean? It's like they're, you can do 71 on the thruway in my area, but every, you're standing still. And it's but like everybody, a, nobody wants to take the time. They just want to shoom, get there to where they're going. Not my husband mm-hmm. and I was like, we like to make stops and enjoy the ride. You know, the younger kids are like, nope, we just want to get there as quick as we can. No stops, no nothing. Just get to our destination. I'm I'm having a hard time personally picturing people being willing to have to double their time to get from A to B. 
It's not a question wrong. of being willing. It's a question of not having any choice. You yeah, you, you don't have a choice. <laughs> I'm if, just thinking and, there might be some pretty unhappy yeah. people. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> and you know, I don't know if you if you followed politics for long. Every <laughs> ten years, there's some grand announcement. You know, uh, what was it? It wasn't a George W. Bush who did the No Child Left Behind Act. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have all of our kids reading proficiently uh, by the year, you know, whatever. And that never happened. And so when these car companies say, oh, by the year 2040, we're not going to be making any gasoline-powered cars, I'd say, yeah, yeah, you're dreaming. You're you're really dreaming. Um, Because in the end, if GM can't produce a car that fits my needs, but some podunk car company can, I'll go to the podunk car company because they're selling me a car I can use. Uh, And so – and and. You know, if if you're, I'm in business, I've got to sell things. So this idea that we're going to go all electric, I think, is built on the idea that people want to go all electric, and people don't because, mm-hmm. as you say, they don't want to take, you know, uh, twice as long to get where they're going. Yeah. The only way we'll get to the point where uh, only electric cars are available is if it becomes a government mandate. Right. That's the only way that'll ever happen. Unless there's some radical – now, there could be some radical new technology that comes out that makes electric True. cars just as good as internal combustion engines. And if that's the case, I'm all for them. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah same here. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, thank you. And I read an article the other day about um, – and you and I you know, touched upon this briefly in our previous conversation about the polar ice caps. And I read another article, and he was not a scientist. He was some reporter for the New York Post maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, Greenland, the melting of the ice caps and how they're melting and all the flooding that's going to take place due to the melting of the ice caps. Can you talk a little bit about the ice caps and the melting? Yeah. So, you know, there are parts of the earth that stay frozen for long, long periods of time. Uh, Some of that ice floats. Uh, that doesn't contribute to sea level at all because it displaces uh, the same amount of water that it would as a liquid. So whether it's ice or liquid and it's floating, that doesn't matter. The concern is most of our ice caps, uh, most of our uh, you know big ice regions are actually sitting on land. So Greenland it's got, you know, uh, solid land behind it and there's a lot of ice on top. Antarctica is a land continent that is completely covered with ice. Uh, that ice is currently not contributing to sea level. If it melts, then of course it drains into the sea and starts contributing to sea level. Hmm. Uh, and that's one concern. Actually, in the scientific literature, however, that's not the most important concern for uh, global warming and, and uh, sea levels. Actually, as temperature goes up, water expands. And that's actually what drives warming-induced sea levels more than melting ice. It's actually the expansion of the water that's already there. Hmm. And once again, most people don't know that because most people aren't familiar with the scientific literature. But in any event, we do know that if the temperature warms, the sea level rises. And we've been seeing that. We've been seeing sea levels rise. Uh, Sea levels have been rising since we've been measuring them in the 1800s. there are some glaciers that have been melting since the 1700s uh, because even though nobody was worried about climate back then, everybody was worried about navigating the ocean. And so glaciers were a really important part of navigating the ocean. So we have some glacial records that go back to the early 1700s. And so we see a lot of glacier melting going on. In other places of the world, we see a lot of glacier growing going on. But there Something's going on because global or the sea level rise has been rising uh, since the late 1800s. The problem is 
that sea level rise has been pretty constant. It hasn't tracked with what the surface temperatures are saying about temperature. Uh, the surface temperatures are saying there's been this this uh, continual increase in temperature. If that directly was the result of the sea level rise we're seeing, we should see an increase in the rate of sea level rise. And we haven't. It's been remarkably linear since the end of the 1800s. So mm-hmm. most likely, any, any whatever's going on with the sea level rise isn't at least directly related to the warming that we've seen because it doesn't have the pattern you would expect. But here's the, here's the big deal. Um, It's true that if you look at the Arctic, there is less ice in the Northern Hemisphere right now than before. However, if you look at the Antarctic, there is more ice. (laughs) So so the Arctic ice is going down. The uh, Antarctic ice is going up. Now, there are regions of the Antarctic that are losing ice, but as, as a whole, the Antarctic ice content is going up. So, not surprisingly, when you just Google ice, you know, global ice content or something, all you're going to find is stuff about the Northern Hemisphere because that's where the ice is being lost. You have to really dig and you have to actually include words like Antarctica in your Google search to learn that, oh yeah, Southern Hemisphere ice is increasing. Whatever (laughs) is going on with ice is not global. It is focused in the Northern Hemisphere. Now I have an idea and this isn't my original idea. I've read about it. Um, uh, but one of the big contributors to the temperature we feel is how land is being used. Uh, so if you walk into Phoenix and then you drive a car 40 miles outside of Phoenix, you'll experience about a 10 degree drop in temperature. Sure. Because all of that pavement and everything holds on to the heat really well. Well, there's a lot more land in the Northern Hemisphere than in the Southern Hemisphere. Hmm. And so it's very likely that everything we're seeing with ice in the Northern Hemisphere has to do with land use in the Northern Hemisphere and not anything atmospheric. Now, we don't know that. All we do know is land use does affect the the surface temperatures. And this is another reason it's possible that both the surface temperatures and the satellite temperatures are right. It's possible surface temperatures really are going up because land use has changed so much. But the satellite temperatures, which measure the atmosphere, aren't sensitive to land use. If you believe in global warming, that's supposed to be happening in the atmosphere, not on land. (laughs) So that explanation for why the the surface temperatures are different from the satellite temperatures actually doesn't support the global warming argument. Very interesting. All right, Dr. Weil, what would you say then in response to someone, do you have words of um, encouragement or reassurance for people that are very fearful? I'm not sure they're words of encouragement, but there are much, much, much worse things to fear than global warming. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you are significantly more likely to die every time you get in a car mm-hmm. than you will be to be affected by global warming. That's the Mm -hmm. bottom line. There are so many ways we put ourselves at risk. There are lots of things to be fearful of. Uh, And, and, you know, I think what like that uh, commercial you read from at the beginning, Mm -hmm. I think what they're trying to do is frame it so that it's not about you. It's about your kids. What kind of planet are, are you giving your kids? Well, if that's really the question, what kind of planet are you giving your kids? Let's just look at the state of this planet. When my parents were uh, my age and the state of the planet now, when mm-hmm. I'm this age, I see life expectancy is higher inf- mortality is down. Uh, uh, food production per person is way, way, way up. 
uh, death from disease is way, way, way down. Pretty much everything from the previous generation to this generation, this generation has it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got to tell me something really remarkable to think that that trend's not going to continue because it's not just that generation. You go back to, you know, when, when my grandparents were my age and then the, my parents became their age, mm-hmm. even that generation, lots of improvement, basically ever since we've been industrializing. <laughs> and honestly, yeah. I mean, it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's really true. Ever since we've been burning fossil fuels, <laughs> the world has gotten better. In pretty much every measurable way. And we're even talking about, you know, look at the number of people who die in wars. I mean, there, there are certain episodics, but percentage of the population, world's population dying in worlds, wars has decreased pretty much every generation. Uh, so in pretty much every measurable way, <laughs> the earth is better off. Uh, now, there are a couple of blips to that. So, for example, in the early 70s, so maybe from 1930 to 1970, air pollution got much, much worse. But now air pollution is significantly better than it was since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like I said, that you can find a few pockets of problems here and there. But in general, every generation produces a better world than the previous generation. And so far, nothing I've seen from global warming indicates that's going to stop. Mm-hmm. And certainly what, what, what we know about global warming now is global warming is not going to stop that. Global warming is probably going to have very, very little impact on it. And in mm-hmm. fact, if anything, it's going to increase food production even more. Yeah. Because we haven't reached the medieval climate optimum yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. And and basically, I mean, it comes down to, as you had I think you had said this, that we're getting in a panic over something that we're not even sure about. Yeah, we don't remember, have definitive answers to at all. Remember, we know the equilibrium climate sensitivity is somewhere mm-hmm. between it doesn't matter and catastrophic. That's all we know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what science tells us right now. Uh, and so there are so many other things to be concerned about. And, and many of them are. And that's what I was going to ask you about. Um, what are some of the problems really that we are facing today that people aren't talking about much? Yeah, I mean, there are serious problems. So the thing that probably tops my list is how much we're polluting the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the ocean is, you know, uh, you could argue that without the life that's in the ocean, we probably couldn't be alive. I'm not sure about that, but certainly our lives depend a lot on ocean lives. And we've got these large portions of the ocean that have just tons and tons of plastic floating in them. Uh, the ocean currents set up in, in ovals called gyres and anything that gets into a gyre that's floating tends to just stay there. Uh, and so specifically, if you look at the gyre between uh, California and Japan, uh, that's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Because basically all the stuff that, that uh, California and Japan have been throwing in the ocean ends up in the Great Pacific Garbage mm. Patch. Um, and it's a very difficult problem because by the time it's there, it's broken up into such tiny fragments that you can't just like drag a net and crab it. So it's right. not like, you know, you mobilize a bunch of ships to go out and drag a bunch of nets and catch all the garbage. That ain't going to work because it's already broken up too much for that. But... You know, we've seen how it's affecting the ecosystems there, um, and it's not 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 affecting them in a good way. And that's something that needs to be fixed, and it's something we actually know is a problem. And I expect if we spent maybe one-tenth of what we're spending on global warming, we could probably fix that problem. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what would we do about something like that? Uh, there's a company. I can't remember what it's called now. I wish I remember the name of the company. Uh, there's a company uh, funded by private investors and private donors, basically. It's a 501c3. Uh, and uh, they are developing technology specifically to do this. And to this day, I think their you know proof of concept technologies have taken out like six tons what what they call micro garbage or whatever. And it it has to do with dragging these things that tend to attract the plastic and not everything else. Uh, So it's using attraction, chemical or molecular attraction rather than filtering. But I honestly don't remember the details of that. I wrote an article about it. I can't remember much about it now, which is because I'm old. (laughs) I hear you. I go into one room and have to stand there for five (laughs) minutes to remember what it is I went in there for, you know. Um, Happens a lot more than I like. So that's one problem. Is there anything else that's that's going on that we should really be concerned about? Well, uh, chemicals are showing up where they shouldn't be showing up. Like okay. uh, perchlorate is a byproduct of uh, rocket fuel uh, combustion, and it's been found in mother's breast milk. That that can't be good. Uh, it's probably it's not at the levels where it's toxic to humans. So I don't think babies are suffering yet. But the fact that it's there is very telling that somehow there's some cross-contamination from the atmosphere to uh, uh, human beings that shouldn't be happening. Uh, and that should be investigated. I don't know anybody who's doing anything serious about that. I mean, I, I don't have an exhaustive knowledge of the scientific literature says it's a problem. I don't know of anybody who's actually trying to fix it. Uh, but that's uh, and, and that's not the only example of a chemical that shouldn't be where it is. It's kind of a dramatic example. So we obviously don't know how to sequester our toxic chemicals as well as we should. And so that's something that we could spend a little bit of money on. Uh, also, one of the things that's really damaging to the uh, uh, nearshore ocean systems is the way we build right now. The way we build right now ends up putting an enormous amount of sediment into the ocean. And the problem with that, the ocean's got plenty of sediment in it, but the sediment when it's near the shore, starts interacting with coral reefs. And coral reefs are a big source of biodiversity in the ocean. Mm. Uh, And so we know we're killing coral because of uh, uh, the sediment. And you would think that we could develop, you know, either methods of construction or regulations or something that would reduce how much of that's happening. You would think we'd be able to do that, but I don't know of anybody who's doing anything like that either. Also, a real recent study indicates that sunscreen is also killing coral. (laughs) Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you put on sunscreen (laughs) while you're on the boat and then you jump in to have a snorkel. You're killing some coral when you do that. (laughs) And obviously, you want to protect yourself from the sun, but we probably (laughs) ought to figure out a way to make sunscreens without coral killing chemicals in them. (laughs) That's interesting. Oh my goodness. And, These you know, are things you learn. Yeah, and, and none of that's getting nearly the press that global warming's getting and we don't even know global warming's going to be a problem. Yeah. I don't know. I just hear more and more people that are that are actually just very fearful and very scared oh, there's about a, there's the very near yeah. future. And so how do I put this? There are people that don't know God that look at the earth and life and our existence in a completely different way than those who do know God yeah. um, and trust in his goodness and, and his sovereignty and his control over his creation. I'm mean, granted, we have to be good stewards. You know, God gave us a beautiful, wonderful planet to live on and, and resources galore. I mean, I, I don't know. Am I wrong in thinking even that these fossil fuels, weren't they the resources God's given us to use? 
I would think so. I mean, you know, we, we can't know the mind of God, uh, in this way, in this particular topic. But, uh, yeah, I would think so. Uh, I think one, one thing that a, a believer would look at things a little different, uh, mm-hmm. than an unbeliever is, you know, an unbeliever has to believe that this world and life and everything's kind of just sort of the result of accident. So it's sort of, um, a hodgepodge slipshod job. And therefore something goes out of whack and everything tumbles. Um, but you know, if you look at most machines that are designed, machines are designed with something called negative feedback mechanisms. And so, for example, you know, if your car is running faster, uh, it also circulates the cooling water faster. So if the fan blows on the cooling water faster so that the cooling water cools off faster, that's a negative feedback mechanism. Running the engine makes it hotter. But we increase the cooling capability, too, to reduce the amount of heat. Um, and if the Earth is designed, you would expect a lot of those um, negative feedback mechanisms. And in fact, we do see them. We do see them. So, you know, for example, early on in the uh, climate change debate, it was thought that as the permafrost, the parts of the land that stay frozen for a long time, as the permafrost thawed, Lots of more carbon dioxide would be uh, emitted into the air, and that would even accelerate the rate of warming. That's a positive feedback mechanism. Warming causes melting, which causes more warming. But it turns out some really serious studies over the last 15 years have been done, and we now know that as permafrost thaws, actually carbon dioxide gets sequestered in the ground. Uh, so even though there is, you know, some stuff that's uncovered that's been rotting and it's going to be emitting carbon dioxide, the life that appears because the permafrost has melted actually absorbs more carbon dioxide. So the net result is as the permafrost goes away, the land absorbs more carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of negative feedback mechanism you expect with a well-designed system. And even though climate researchers originally didn't think it would, it existed, we now know that it does. And I think there's probably a lot of negative feedback mechanisms like that that have been designed into the earth to keep it from grow, going way too hot or way too cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, that's in some sense, that's an article of faith. I think that that has been supported by at least some studies like the permafrost studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, I think if you're a believer, you've got to believe that somebody smarter than you designed this world. <laughs> and so they, that 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 somebody probably put some thought into what might happen if people started messing with the planet. Um, mm-hmm. So in the end, as a believer, I tend to think it's safer to assume uh, that there are more negative feedback mechanisms than there are ways for us to mess it up. <laughs> That's been my way of thinking, too, is that God knew how we were going to be heating our homes and running our cars and, you know, industrializing um, all these things. And he's prepared his his planet for that. Again, mm-hmm. we still need to do things in the most responsible way. Oh, yeah that we can, of course, to, to take care of it. But, um, in the end, this world isn't going to, um, cease to exist until God says, you know, that, right, that yeah. things are going to cease to, to exist or come to a halt or have this horrible, um, catastrophic ending to our world as we know it. He's in control. We need to do our best as we can as his created and stewards of the planet. Well, but if we're going to be good stewards of the planet, we need to be using our resources to fix real problems. 
and and yes, I don't think that's I don't, true. You know, and so if you really are wanting to be a steward of the planet, I don't think global warming should be top on your list because yeah. we just I think there are better uses of our resources. Like the garbage in the ocean yeah, like and the, the rocket fuel detected in mother's <laughs> breast milk and things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I so, 100% so, you know, agree. Yeah, you, you want to be a good steward, good, mm-hmm. good steward, but being a good steward means looking at science and seeing what science says the real problems are. And yeah. I just don't see science saying that about global warming, at least not at this stage. Not at this stage, yeah. But once again, you, you, you do more research Research on it uh, mm-hmm. because you need to know these things, and certainly you can uh, you, you do you do uh, uh, try to improve uh, alternative sources of energy because who knows what might come up, uh, but you don't force on to people. And that's the other thing, you know, a lot of these people who call call themselves environmentalists, they kind of forget that people are part of the environment too, mm. uh, and so they don't typically think of what is this initiative that I'm uh, promoting going to do to people? Because to them, the, you know, people, I mean, I do know people like Paul Ehrlich, for example, I honestly think that human beings are a virus, you know, that is destroying the earth. And the best thing for the earth is to get rid of this virus entirely. Uh, and he's, he's stated that quite simply, <laughs> but, but, you know, wow. I think most people would agree, Hey, people are part of that ecosystem too. So yes. whatever way we're going to be good stewards of the earth has to be being good stewards of our brothers and sisters. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Dr. And unfortunately, that's not, if you look at what like people like the green new deal, they're not being good stewards of people at all. They're killing, especially African babies left and right. And nobody cares. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can't thank you enough for um, providing such clarity and your invaluable insight here. I've learned well, a know, lot. It's interesting that you call it clarity because honestly, the scientific answer is we don't really know. No, but you still, <laughs> you still, some, uh, you got to think I'm talking from the viewpoint of an ignoramus like me. Okay. Yeah, sure. You sure. know, I don't check into this myself. Mm. Although, I mean, I know enough to know that no, our world's not going to end in the next 10 years because of global warming. But, I, I don't know that when you talk yeah. about the different temperature gauges and how they don't agree and and all these things that you're pointing out, um, I had no clue. Yeah, just just absolutely no clue. But you've really filled me in on a lot and just providing some sort of clarity in how our world works a little bit. Well, and you know, you know if, if people want to be have this, you know. Uh, clarity that indicates we don't really know what's going on. If people want more of that clarity, one of the best books about this is written by uh, somebody who used to be on Obama's climate team. So, you know, you would think he'd be all gung-ho on this global warming stuff, but it's uh, Stephen E. Coonan, and he wrote a book called Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. And that gives you a really good understanding of what we know and what we don't know. And then the other one that I really like, it was written by a, a, a geologist who, who specializes in climate of the past, uh, paleoclimate, I guess they call it, is global warming, alarmists, skeptics, and deniers. A geoscientist looks at the science of climate change. Uh, and that's by G. Dedrick Robinson. Uh, so those two books are really good at showing you both sides of what we know and what we don't know. Thank you for pointing us to those resources because you just answered my next question, which was, can you recommend any good books? Um, awesome. That, thank you so much. How about you? Where can people find you? 
Oh, so my website is uh, uh, www.drwild. That's just D-R-W-I-L-E. So okay. drwild.com. And that that takes you to, it's really my blog more than anything else. I've been kind of uh, lazy about blogging over, the, over this academic year because I've been really busy. But it's got several years worth of data. And if you click on home and categories, the, one of the categories is global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've, so, yeah, I've read uh, it. You've, you've yeah. got a lot of good info there, and yeah. you, you have you have um, articles even from other people on there, if I'm yep. correct too. So, um, yep. very, very. And also, uh, another really good voice on this is Dr. Judith Curry, uh, and I think it's just judithcurry.com, if I'm not mistaken. She uh, uh, she was a NASA climatologist who had to resign because she was being muzzled because she was basically saying, look, we don't know. Uh, and, and because of that, NASA didn't want her anymore. Um, and she, but she's, uh, you know, has dozens and dozens of climatology papers and the peer reviewed literature. Yeah. So it's just Judith Curry, C-U-R-R-Y.com. She's another good, and I, I feature her on my blog occasionally because, uh, uh, she's a, a, a reasonable, you know, if you read her, this is one thing I, I probably, I should have said earlier, if you read a scientist and you always agree with that scientist, you're probably not getting the full story. <laughs> Because <laughs> science is messy. And so when I read Judith Curry, there are things I disagree with her on, but I think mm-hmm. she's a very balanced voice and she's incredibly knowledgeable about climate. And non politicized, right? Yeah, non politicized for sure. She's and that's, that's really what you interested hear. in the science. Exactly, exactly. Lee, get the politics out of it and just, yeah, absolutely. Dr. Weil, thank you so much for uh, taking your time to be here today. Oh, it's my I am pleasure. Very grateful, and I always I enjoy speaking with you. Um, thank you so very much. That was a great pleasure. All right, you take care. All right, bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. Again, a special thanks to Dr. Weil for taking the time to be with us today, and to share his knowledge about the subject of uh, climate change. We could have touched upon so many more things, but maybe another episode, right? Because <laughs> there's just so much that we could have talked about and so much that more that he knows that he could have shared with us. But um, I guess you could say that what we covered today is just the tip of the iceberg, right? (laughs) But anyway, I hope this can relieve you of any anxiety you may be feeling at the reports that you hear that we are in dire straits and the world is soon going to just come to a chaotic end if, if we don't you know, go green now and stop using our fossil fuels now and um, all of the fear-mongering ads that we hear out there. Perhaps you know someone who's fearful, who is really um, struggling with anxiety because of this very thing. Share this episode with them. Direct them to Dr. Wild, to his website, his blog. Encourage them to do more research, to do their homework. As Christians, we don't have any reason to fear. This is God's earth. It's his planet. He created it. He knows how to sustain it. And and as Dr. Weil said, there's um there are mechanisms built in. God knew what he was doing. He foresaw the future and the, the energy and the resources that we would be using that he gave us to keep warm, to keep cool, for transportation, for for production. He knew what we'd be using. God has made this earth so it knows how to respond when perhaps certain things build up because of the methods that we are employing for heat, for fuel, for for living. God will keep this planet running until he says, 
otherwise. Let's remember to do what we can to do our part in being good stewards of this earth, of God's planet. If you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Weil, you can check him out at blog.drweil.com. That's W-I-L-E. That's how you spell his last name, blog.drweil.com. You can also find some of the things he's written on bereanbuilders.com. As I said in the last episode, he's got a lot of good articles on his site, articles written by him, articles written by other notable scientists as well. So check it out when you have the chance. And hey, be that one little candle, be that light by not succumbing to the fear. Know that God is sovereign. He's on his throne. He's in control. And there's a lot more to the story. And if you know someone who is fearful and anxious for the future, again, please share this episode with them, direct them to Dr. Weil and encourage them to do their homework. Song of the week is God is in control. It's on YouTube. I'll have the link in the podcast description as well, but it's called God is in Control by Twyla Harris. Check it out. I hope it encourages you today. Hey, if you like this. Okay, so song of the week. Song of the week is, and it's on YouTube as are most of my songs, and I will have the description or the link in the podcast description. And the name of the song is God is in Control. It's by Twyla Paris. Check it out. I hope it really encourages you this week. And hey, if you like this episode or if you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review. Um, those are always appreciated, but follow us, follow me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram at one little candle. If you want to leave a comment about the show, you can, um, find me on Facebook at candles together or leave a comment on my website. Always love to hear from you. And I just want to leave you with this thought or a couple Bible verses because God tells us over and over in the Bible to fear not. In Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And it's his righteous right hand, my friend, that holds this earth together, right? Keeps it rotating, causes the sun to rise, causes the sun to set. It is God's powerful, loving, righteous right hand that does all of this. Until next week, you take care and God bless.